So tonight I'd like to talk about love. And just this moment as I was sitting here, I, I, when I thought, yes, I'm talking about love tonight, I realized that I've been talking about love since the beginning of the retreat, that the entire body of teachings and practices are all about love. Everything's pointing to that. Love is another expression of the awakening heart and mind. But interestingly enough, the Buddha really didn't speak about love. You read the, it's, there's not a word that's really translated in, the, from, in Pali as love. We have metta, which is the closest uh, word. It's a Sanskrit word. It was in place before the Buddha was teaching. It was, it's part of the Hindu uh, body of teachings which the Sanskrit comes from. So loving kindness is metta, is what Carla presented today at, at the, this afternoon. But in terms of the way we feel love and know love and, and reflect on love, the Buddha didn't really talk so much about that because actually the Buddha really didn't express much about what it was like to be awakened what it was like to be a realized being. The Buddha's teachings are more about the path to that realization. But it's very odd, really, that he, he didn't give us much information about what it was actually like to be a Buddha or to be an awakened being. So we're kind of left to our own resources to figure that out. Hopefully we can. <laughs> Hopefully we have enough of our own experiences that we can say, oh yeah, it's like this. It tastes like this, it smells like this. But there's not much available to us that we can actually reflect on in that regard. And one of the areas that we do have in the body of teachings is what's called the four Brahma Viharas or these uh, uh, Brahma Viharas, also Sanskrit for uh, the, the home of Brahma, or the home of the gods. Uh, Brahma Vihara, Vihara is home or house. Brahma, a god, Brahma. So, so when we talk about these four divine abodes, or these four homes, this is very much a, a, a body of the teaching that we practice and we consider and we look at in our tradition, which was brought forth from the time uh, before the Buddha. The Buddha brought that through in his teachings. And so these four Brahma-Viharas, I feel, because there's not so much in the, the discourses of the Buddha that really points to the awakened heart and mind, I feel that the four divine abodes are actually quite that. They are expressions of the awakened heart and mind. And so I think we can really look at that particular body of information to get a feeling for what is it when we talk about an open heart or an awakened heart or an open mind. And I've been more and more interested in these particular teachings of the Brahma Viharas because I, I think there's some... In, there's something in there, there's something kind of uh, 
uh, hidden, embedded in those teachings that, that we can draw on that might reveal something to us. And these four divine abodes really are four flavors of love. Four different flavors of love. And so I want to talk a little bit about these four flavors of love and see what we can actually recognize in our own experience. Because these, these, these four Brahma-Viharas are practices that we uh, can engage in and cultivate, but in some ways they're also expressions of the goal of the path. This, this express, these expressions of a loving heart. And again, just to say, when we talk about the awakened heart, we're really talking also about the awakened mind. Because what we can feel and what we find is that as, our, as we let go of that tightly constricted conceptual overlay of our, of our thinking mind, when we start to break that up and we're not so engaged in that in the same way, when our mind opens, we might say that the mind opens to the heart, or it, it really feels more like the experience of rather than having all of our energy go up into our thinking mind, because we can actually feel like we're kind of in our head a lot and our thinks, thinking is going, and sometimes we feel like we can, our, our head is constricted and we get headaches, and it's because there's so much energy in that conceptualization and that thinking that when that breaks up and the mind opens, we actually can have an experience of our energy dropping into our heart. And so instead of the energy being so much in our head, we actually feel more energy in a substantial way in our heart. And that heart, the heart, then starts to feel very energized and vital and open and connected. And we can even start to feel like we're meeting life from our heart, from this part of our, of our being, this more of the center. But then that connects lower with the hara or the belly. And then we start to feel like instead of moving so much from our head, we're actually moving in life from here, from the center of our being, our heart and our belly. So the mind just becomes somewhat incidental, our thinking mind. It's hard to imagine that, isn't it? <laughs> we might say that our thinking mind actually becomes a servant of our heart. It's no longer the master. It's no longer in control. But the heart is the master of our, of our experience, of our being. And so when we talk about these four divine abodes, these four uh, qualities, these expressions of love, these expressions of the heart, we start to have a sense of what's it like as we start to be, be, be from the heart. We are a being, a heart being, a being that starts to move and live and express, be expressed through the heart. What's that like? So we can kind of look at these a little bit to get a sense of, of that quality of being. These four are loving kindness, the metta, uh, and these are the four buildings, right? Sometimes there's some people here who don't actually know what those uh, Sanskrit words mean. 
the metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. That's the, these are the four expressions of the heart. So the metta, the loving kindness, is the first one. And that really is an expression. It's an expression of happiness. It's really the heartfelt wish for all beings to be happy and well. It's a, I, lo- I, love t- I really love talking about it because when I talk about it, I can feel it. I can feel my heart, that wish that all beings are happy and well. It's really a kind of a deep kind of uh, wish, desire for that to be. The second one, karuna, which is compassion. And this is when this love, this love that we feel for all beings and all beings' well-being, when this love is turned towards the suffering, turned towards the painful aspect of life, will really allow the heart to go near that which is painful. And that awakens the compassion. It's a little bit of a different turn. And when we feel the compassion, that wish that goes out is that all beings are free of their suffering, that all beings are free of their pain. In the same way, we can feel that heartfelt wish that that may be so, that that may be true. And then when we feel into the mudita, the mudita is joy. It's, It's when the love is turned towards the 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 happiness or the delight, the celebration, rather than the pain. So the love moves from the pain into the joy, it's mudita. And then we can feel the joy for other people's joy and other people's happiness. And we can feel the joy for our own happiness. And the the wish in the mudita is that, that people's joy never ends. May your happiness and joy never end. May it continue forever. May you always be happy and joyful. This wish for for that never-ending experience of joy. And then we can feel the same for ourselves when we feel happy and joyful. May this never end. It's okay to celebrate your joy. Sometimes we think, oh, well, no, I'm supposed to be kind of, you know, very tranquil and calm and still and detached and quiet. You know, no, sometimes you want to just celebrate and, and feel the happiness and the, the delight of, of life and being alive. That, too, this is another expression of the heart, of the love, love for the, the, the joyful aspect of life the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys. This is what makes up this life continuum. So we celebrate the joy when it comes, and we feel the, the compassion for the pain and the suffering, and we allow our heart to feel that. Nothing excluded. Again, this, this immeasurable inclusivity. And then the upeka, the equanimity, the equanimity, which is the, in a way, the overarching and the underlying um, uh, expression of love that holds everything in place because the equanimity is unmoving, it's still, it's unreactive. And for me, equanimity is really the truest expression of love 
because everything is okay in equanimity. It holds the sorrow, it holds the joy, it holds the wish for all beings, it holds it all in this place of utter stillness. Everything is as it needs to be. So the expression, the wish, it's not even a wish for equanimity. It's not wishing anything out. Equanimity is more of a statement of reality that things are the way they are. And the, the, if there's a wish, it's, uh, it's kind of like no matter how much I may wish for things to be otherwise, things are as they are. Things are as they are. And may I accept the way things are with grace and with dignity. So equanimity is this capacity to be able to hold it all, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. So each one of these is a particular flavor, a particular expression of our heart. And as we pay attention and, and, and practice and consider these different aspects, we can actually come into the fullness of the experience of each one of them in their own precise and uh, distinct way. And we see that each one arises dependent on the situation. Sometimes we may just be in a very open and quiet state and we see somebody or something that we love and this wish, this simple wish goes out and wishes for them to be happy and well and safe and at ease. Just this lovely wish will just go out, wishing for that for them. Or if we're, if we're with somebody who's really having some wonderful successes and great things happen in their lives, the mudita may just come and we'll feel so happy for them. Isn't it wonderful that you're having all this joy and this success in your life, all this abundance? How wonderful for you. And so the joy will just come forth. Or the compassion when we're with somebody who's in some pain and suffering and sorrow and some tears and crying, sadness, and our heart just goes out. And we want to help them alleviate that pain. We don't want them to suffer. Our heart hurts. We, we want to, is, is there something that we can do? Is there some way we can help to, to help that being out of their pain? It's a natural movement of the heart. And it's not even really something that we have to do, but when we're open and when we're in contact, when we're mindful and engaged, the heart responds. When we allow ourselves to be touched by life, our heart responds. And it's interesting because I think sometimes we might have an image of where these teachings are going. I mean, we have these Buddha images, you know, and the Buddha images are always just completely still and unmoving and kind of looking very detached and very kind of not so engaged in the world. (laughs) And we can imagine that somehow our inner state is supposed to be like that, that somehow our meditation is supposed to get to the place where we have that very quiet, peaceful, still, unreactive, kind of detached way of being. But, but because 
it's not really true and we haven't really fully understood, then we try to make ourselves into that. And then when we have these strong feelings or we come into contact with different situations or we have our own process that we're going through and we have a lot that we're feeling, we might think that something is wrong because it doesn't match our image of perhaps where these teachings are going. But yet, there's the, the, the heart is opening. The heart is engaged. The heart's a, the heart's, there's, there's movement. There's vitality. There's energy moving. And this, this, is a kind, this is an expression of aliveness. So we don't want to push this away. We don't want to push it down. We just want to learn how to work with these strong and intense emotions so that we don't feel overwhelmed by them. We don't feel carried away by them. We don't feel like we're in some kind of tsunami, which we can feel sometimes. You're tumbling and tumbling with our own emotional states. But how do we, how do we stay open? How do we keep our heart open to life as it is without getting caught in the tumbling how do, we, how do we stay present and yet with some balance and with some steadiness, but not shut down the heart, allow ourselves to be moved and touched? And in that openness, being able to respond to what's needed in any given situation, be able to act because we're connected, because we're in touch, because we're present. So it's a different kind of, it might look different than the way you imagine. You know, when we get in, when we have certain images about what we're supposed to look like as meditators or where this path is going, there's this uh, coin that John Well, uh, this uh, phrase that John Wellwood, this psychologist, uh, coined, which is uh, uh, spiritual bypassing. And I think he, it's a very important kind of... Um, Word, words to consider because we can use the meditation to transcend too quickly. You know, the meditation can give us tools for real concentration and tranquility and, and quiet and stillness. But when we get really good at that, then we can use it not to feel <laughs> a lot of things about our psychology, about our conditioning, about our personality that actually we need to feel and understand because as soon as we come out of the concentrated state, it's there again. We're back in our, 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 our conditioned habits and our emotions and our responses and our reactions. So, so as we allow ourselves to open more to this, we also come into more self-understanding and self-discovery. But it's a tricky road. It's a delicate road. How to find that balance to stay open yet not overwhelmed. This is what we're, what we're looking at. This is the um, Metta Sutta. It's translated from one of the uh, discourses of the Buddha. And this is where the, um, the practice of loving kindness comes from. It goes like this. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. 
wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. It's so beautiful. Let none through anger or ill will wish, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing, walking, sitting, or lying down. <laughs> Free from drowsiness, one should, should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. The sublime abiding, the abiding of the awakened heart. So this teaching gives us a lot of a practice guidelines here. You know, a lot to orient towards. Working with the way the ill will and the anger arises in our own mind, towards ourselves, towards other people, how it gets projected out, blame and judgment at others. Really looking at this particular, these patterns of mind so that we can come into understanding of our heart and what blocks our heart, what blocks the boundless radiant love that is our heart. We not only turn this love out to all beings, but we turn it back to ourselves. We do not exclude ourselves. This uh, from the Buddha's teachings and I was really surprised when I heard this the first time. He said, I searched the whole universe with my mind, and I did not find a single being more worthy of love than myself. Self is as dear as every other. He or she who loves oneself will never harm another. And that's what's key. He or she who loves oneself will never harm another because the heart is awakened to love. And when the heart is awakened to love, love does not harm. There's no harm. It is only, again, what I spoke of last night, the ego activity, the ego mind that can be filled with the greed and the hatred and the confusion about what's what and who's what and what's going on. But love is clear. Love sees all beings, all things as one, of one taste, of one substance. There's no difference between me and another. Why would I hurt anyone else if it's just me? Everyone's just an extension of myself, 
of my own heart. He or she who loves oneself will never harm another. And so we practice is what we practice with the love. We practice with the loving kindness. We, as Carla was speaking today, beginning that practice for us. So we turn it out, but we turn it in. I was remembering today when I first did my, I think when I did my very first long retreat, I did a three-month retreat back in the um, early 80s. And um, it happened to be a time where there was a group of my friends who were also starting to do a long-term practice. We went to IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, together, which was really the only place at that time to do long-term practice with some guidance. And I really was going deep on that retreat, really looking at myself in a way that I never had before. And I remember that my primary experience there was one of being in almost continuous anger and aversion and agitation. It was so unpleasant to actually be with myself (laughs) and to witness what was actually going on in my own mind that it was so hard to stay here that what I did, because there were a number of friends around, is I just kept projecting my anger onto my friends (laughs) and just making them all wrong. They were wrong and they were bad and why why were they my friends anyhow? And, you know, it was not only was the anger and the distress here, but that just went out in a really big way. So my whole environment was one of just anger and aversion and distress. It was that, like that, that anger in myself, it, it became like a, a, wearing colored glasses, that everything I saw and everything I looked at was wrong and bad and should be different particularly my friends. And, you know, sometimes it's a little bit safer. I don't know. It's a strange thing. We can get angry at our friends rather than a stranger because, you know, there's, there's more safety in it or something. Like the person you're closest with sometimes, you feel more willing to show your worst side <laughs> because somehow you have some kind of agreement together that you'll do that, whereas with strangers you want to be really, you know, polite and kind and not show those sides of yourself. So something similar with friends, you know. So one time I was sitting in the meditation hall and uh, there was some morning and I was sitting after the bell and people were going to breakfast and I was just really into my concentration and my sitting. And then it was going on a little longer so that my friend, who was actually had the yogi job of vacuuming the meditation hall, <laughs> came in to do his vacuuming. <laughs> and so I'm the only one, and the hall holds about 100 people, and I'm sitting in the front and doing my meditation, and he comes and he starts vacuuming. <laughs> he's a vacuum, turns on. Of course, he's just doing his yogi job. I'm the only one in there. It is, you know, 8 o'clock. And, and I was just so angry at him. How dare he come in and start to vacuum when I'm sitting here and doing my meditation. 
And I can just remember this righteousness, this self-righteous anger. I was absolutely, I had a right to be sitting there. He should not have come in. And I think I stewed in that for a couple of days, <laughs> you know. And I'm just, I'm just rem- I was remembering, you know, and then the teachers would uh, be presenting loving kindness. <laughs> you know, teaching metta practice. And so then I would, you know, try to, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. And then I would just be feeling all this anger, and then I'd get angry at myself because I was so unloving and so much hating my friends. And, you know, and it was just this constant kind of battle that I found myself in. And I remember it so well because it's just this remembering the, the, the confusion and the pain when there's not really much understanding at all of what really is possible. And yet I did my practice. I did my practice. I did my sitting and my walking, and I would do the loving kindness, and I would really be diligent, and I would put my hand on my heart and wish for myself to be happy and peaceful and at ease. And I would do it again and again and again. And it was so powerful, really. I mean, I hated doing the metta. But I, (laughs) well, probably because I was hating everything at that time. (laughs) But I, there was again, as I spoke the other night, about this deeper faith. There's something that keeps us going. It's completely mysterious when (laughs) there would be so much challenge and so much difficulty, but we keep going and we keep going. And there's something that we know. And for me, there was something I knew that these teachings were going to lead me out of this pain. These teachings were going to lead me out, these practices, and I could trust them. And I trusted my teachers. And I trusted my own momentary experiences that I was having that said, keep going, keep going, keep going. And in time, more and more evidence that there is some hope. (laughs) So this, these, these, talking about that because just to to say, you know, these, these, this practice, this loving kindness practice, is an antidote for hatred. It's an antidote for the aversion and the anger, to show us, yes, there is something else. This possibility of wishing for ourselves to be happy, wishing for this peacefulness and this ease. And then not only for ourselves, but then we see other people going through the same thing, and we can express that out. May you too be free. May you be free of your anger and your hatred. May you you open to love. May you open to peace. And it becomes this heartfelt wish, this heartfelt wish where we know deeply what's possible for us as human beings. And and people here have been talking about changes that have been happening for them, coming more into their heart and their their hearts starting to open. One yogi was talking today about the feeling in the kitchen doing his yogi job and working with the food, and and the sense of working with other people, preparing the food, and that that sense of knowing that it's going out as an offering for the other yogis who are practicing 
and looking at their own minds and heart. And that beautiful sense of generosity of spirit, another flavor of the heart, of the love, really, the generosity that goes out, that wants to serve, that wants to give, that can feel not only the love from his own heart, but that, that the love that is being offered to the others through the food that's being prepared. And then the, the sharing of that, the, gener- the generosity of the circle together. And as we are walking in the silence and working together in the silence and being together here, we start to feel a kind of connection together. It's happening in the groups where people say, oh, it's so wonderful that we can share this way together and support each other in this way, talk about things that we don't often get a chance to talk about and share. And the heart starts to open in this way. We feel the connection. And more and more we feel the whole, rather than just this retreat, the meditation room, we start to feel the whole retreat center as a sacred space, a a sacred container, a space that's holding us and this possibility for this awakening, the awakening of our heart and our our mind and deepening into more of an essential uh, nature that we are. And the other creatures and the other beings that are here. You know, the first night we, we took on the guideline of not harming or killing any living beings, creating a kind of sacred container here, practicing guidelines that are an expression of this compassion, this expression of this care, of this non-harming nature, and so then we have all these beings here, these deer and the turkey and, you know, the horses and the birds and the lizards, and they're all here with us. And what's so beautiful is that when you walk down the path and there are deer, they're not frightened. They're not skittish. They, they, don't, they don't run. If you go down to the meadows sometimes in where the administration buildings are, the whole uh, grass field will be filled with deers and turkeys mm-hmm. together. And there are people walking by and in and out. And that's because they're second and third generation animals who have been born here and who've lived here. And because it's a sacred and loving and caring, compassionate place, they're not frightened. And they feel that they can be here with us. And it's an ex- another expression of what's possible, sort of in the, in the space, as we walk with love and we walk with care and we walk with this kind of sensitivity and we have this openness to what's around us, this sampajanya, what I was talking about this morning, this clear comprehension of the whole field, of the whole space, then we are sensitive. We are intimate with our whole field. And every body and every being starts to, be, starts to feel that. And the space becomes sacred. This is what we mean by sacred. 
a sacred space that supports and holds this deepening of love and compassion and wisdom. It's in a way sometimes why people generally don't want to leave at the end of a retreat. (laughs) I don't want to go. (laughs) Because we experience something here, we create something here together that is very beautiful, that is very precious, and and it's an expression of this love, an expression of the love and the care and the compassion. Compassion, this love that's turned towards the suffering. Literally, it means a quivering or a tenderness in the heart. A quivering. You can feel that when the, when the love is turned towards the, the painful aspect. There's a kind of quivering in the response to the being's pain. And that quivering and that that wanting to alleviate, that, that what can I do, how can I help if we're open and in contact. This is from um, a quote from um, Myung Sun Sunim, who is an abbess at a Korean seminary for uh, uh, 300 Buddhist nuns. And uh, she says, when we speak of compassion, we, we only speak of great compassion because compassion is great. She says, great sadness means that when someone falls into a lot of suffering, we spend much energy to get them out of it. It also means when sentient beings are sad, we are sad with them. When they cry, we also cry. Great love means that when sentient beings are happy, We are happy with them, being sad together, being happy together. This is great compassion. Great love means that we give great happiness. Great sadness means that we deliver people from their suffering. Great compassion. We're present, we're connected, we're engaged, we're awake. Happiness, pain, how does the heart move in response to that? Whether it's our own or whether it's others or whether it's the world, what is our capacity? And maybe we will feel that our, sometimes we don't have much capacity, that our heart feels quite small or bound up quite limited, and then can we turn our love, can we turn our compassion to that? Can we just hold that so that doesn't have to be any different? I don't have to be any different. I can just hold my sense of limitation, hold my what feels like a small and limited heart with great love, with great compassion. We start where we are. We don't have to be anywhere else than where we are. As I said last night, you don't have to be fixed. (laughs) You just are where you are, and we turn our love to that. And sometimes we may think we have no love. I don't have any love to turn. I think I felt like that when I was at that retreat, 
in the, in, in the three-month retreat, I have no love. <laughs> I am just an angry, hateful person. <laughs> and yet the teachers kept pointing me towards my heart. And I kept doing the practices, and I did the practices. And eventually something broke through, something awakened, and I, I no longer think of myself as an angry and hateful person. <laughs> I see that that was the very limited idea of myself. So this sadness is really important. You know, I think sometimes we want to surrender our sadness too soon. This is um, this beautiful poem from Hafiz that I love to read. Hafiz is a Sufi poet, 13th century, I think. He says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of God absolutely clear. Don't surrender your loneliness too quickly. And these feelings, the sadness, the loneliness, the angst, whatever we're feeling, it's like there's alchemy for the heart. There's, it's medicine. It's medicine for the heart. In, in our practice, we say it's moisturizer for the heart. <laughs> it's like salve, because otherwise, you know, this practice can actually become very dry, very detached, you know, lifting, moving, placing, hearing, listening, breathing in, breathing out, walking, eating. <laughs> you know, sometimes we, you know, when the, when the feelings start to move in the heart, it's juicy, you know, it's moist, moist, it's good. No, we don't want to get too dry. We don't get, want to get too brittle. You know, we can, even in this practice. You know, sometimes there's a, there's a word called dry insight. You know, dry insight. Because insight, you know, just seeing emptiness, just seeing impermanence, just seeing suffering, you know, can be pretty dry. <laughs> yeah, I see it. I see it. I see it. So the heart starts to open up. We start to, this, the metta, the, the compassion, the joy, it's, it's the salve. Keeps the heart malleable, pliable. I see I have about three talks here. <laughs> trying to get a sense of which direction to go now. I think I'll talk about the joy. Because the joy, you know, it's another one that we can, and it's happened, it's come up with some people in the groups where, you know, somehow it's not okay to feel the joy. It's not okay to feel so good, to feel so happy. You know, a few people were talking about 
how it can almost feel like we're moving on too quickly and we're leaving people behind, we're leaving our lives behind, we're leaving people that who are suffering behind, and, and it's, not, it's, it's not okay to be so happy. What will, what will people think? What we, don't, we don't care about them, their suffering anymore, or you know, we're not sensitive to their suffering anymore because we just feel so good in ourselves. It's like, what happened to you? You know? And it's a kind of interesting kind of psychological thing that happens where we think we need to keep ourselves small. We need to keep ourselves limited so that we don't move on. We don't leave the, the, the known and the familiar because when we start to open our heart and feel more joy, we actually start to expand. We actually start to become unfamiliar to ourselves. In a certain way, we start to become somewhat unrecognizable to ourselves. Who is this person? Who is this person who's so happy and joyful? I used to be so miserable. I used to be you know, suffering so much, and all of a sudden, I'm feeling good. Something wrong? <laughs> you know, is something wrong here? So this joy, the mudita, is we want to celebrate not only our own happiness and success and joy, but other people's as well. Because when other people are feeling happy, sometimes what can happen in, 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 the, in the mudita is that we actually start to get a little jealous of other people's happiness. It's like, well, why are they so happy? You know, um, why can't I have as much happiness as they have? You know, and we get a little competitive sometimes as well, or envious with other people's success. You know, I want to be successful like they are. How come they are? You know? So, so we, when, we, when we feel the joy, we want to see if we can actually open to it and allow it and celebrate it. There's this lovely poem from um, Robert Hall, who uh, was, was one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock. He still is, however, he now lives down in Baja, is teaching down there. And this is from his book of poems called The Inward Journey. It's, it goes like this. We are afraid to be happy, tremulous about getting the news. We are afraid to step into our new clothes walk in sturdy shoes and let our faces shine, afraid someone will object to our celebration. Perhaps we will step on someone's toes while dancing through our transformation. But I'm in flight like an eagle. My wings are wisdom and love. My feathers are thoughts of well-being. I will soar over the deserts and beaches, calling loudly for all to hear. Can you hear my screeching? I am clearly here. I am clearly here. And so when we feel this joy and we feel this celebration, we take space for that. We say, yes, I feel good, I feel happy, and I'm here. And I want to share that joy. I want to share that celebration. I'm happy for myself, and I'm happy for you when you feel joy. So this too, this side of the love, this side of the expression of love. 
And then the equanimity, what I call the true expression of love, because it's all embracing. It's really what holds everything else in place. Because without the equanimity that is in our consciousness, that is an aspect, that is a characteristic of our consciousness, when we feel the happiness and we wish for other people to be happy and we feel that closeness and that connection, without the equanimity, what happens is we can start to feel possessive. Like, I, I love that person so much and I'm so happy for that person, but I want to be with that person all the time and I want to be close to that person and I want that. And we can get very possessive and attached to that happiness, that happiness being there. So the equanimity is what keeps us just wishing, but without holding and expecting that to stay in place. Without the equanimity, with compassion, when we touch the pain and we don't have the equanimity, we can so easily fall into states where we get attached, again, to things happening a particular way, where we want somebody to feel better, or we want to rescue people, or to help people, or want things to be other than they are. And we can fall into states of anger, or uh, uh, grief, or sorrow, because things aren't the way we like them to be. The equanimity keeps that in place so that our heart can just touch the pain without needing things to be a particular way, but we can still engage and let life unfold as it will and be as it, as it needs to be. And the same for the joy. Without the equanimity, when we feel the joy, we can get into these states of envy and jealousy and competitiveness and all that rather than just feeling the joy. The equanimity holds it in place. The equanimity is this, it's like a mirror-like quality of mind. It's completely still, it's completely unmoving, completely unreactive to what's occurring. It has like this mirror-like quality, and it's like a clear pond that can reflect everything perfectly in its clarity and its stillness, without, without needing anything to be otherwise. And this is, it's, another, it's also called an expression of the awake mind, in the sense that it is the natural state, completely the absence of opposition, complete love, complete embracing of all things. I just want to read this, um, this little folk tale because I think that it really is a nice expression of equanimity, if you can get this. It's called The Farmer and the Businessman. A, bus- a businessman needing to attend a conference in a faraway city decided to travel on country roads rather than freeways so he could enjoy a relaxing journey. After some hours of traveling, he realized he was hopelessly lost. Seeing a farmer tending his field on the side of the road, he stopped to ask for directions. Can you tell me how far it is to Chicago, he asked the farmer. Well, I don't rightly know, the farmer replied. Well, can you tell me how far I am from New York, the businessman questioned again. Well, I don't rightly know, the farmer again replied. 
Well, can you at least tell me the quickest way to the main road, the exasperated businessman asked. No, I don't rightly know, the farmer again answered. You really don't know very much at all, do you, blurted the <laughs> impatient businessman. Nope but I ain't lost either. <laughs> That's equanimity. <laughs> you know where you are, right? The farmer is calm. So we're uncovering, our practice is uncovering, uncovering the qualities of our nature, the qualities of our being. This gives us some sense of this expression of the awakening heart, the awakening mind, how we might respond, how we might feel how we might be able to attend to the changing experiences that come and go in our life. We allow our hearts to be touched. We allow our hearts to be touched. And then we learn and we discover how to be with this very mysterious, and challenging life that we find ourselves in. And we are given teachings, we're given the map, we're given the path to help us find our way in this very confusing (laughs) place that we find ourselves. So I want to um, end with this poem that somebody wrote on a loving-kindness retreat and gave to me. Uh, the a person's name is Kenneth Simmons, and if I'd love to meet Kenneth Simmons again because it's such a beautiful poem, and I don't really know who this person, person is. I don't even know whether it's a man or a woman, <laughs> Kenneth. So, But I love this so much, and... Um, I want to share this with you because I feel that this really um, expresses very much what I've been speaking about tonight. So it's called uh, Metta Practice, Loving Kindness Practice, Spirit Rock. Day 6, 6 a.m. Daybreak floats, weightless, like, like fog at the window. Eight pools of yellow light, like fragrance, touch memory, light warming the air. Sound is reduced to one bird. The rustle, now and then of fabric, the creak from time to time of wood, invisibly flexing, and the almost sound of a hundred people, each cloaked in our own tent of beautiful cloth, breathing. Each behind closed eyes polishes a family of beloveds, with phrases uttered 10,000 times by the heart, by the mind, by the pores of our skin, like the sound in the seashell or the constant sound of a distant ocean. The sound of breathing, not anybody's breathing, breath itself, 
breathing love, not anybody's love, love itself, utterly love, breathing. Let's sit for just a minute together. May all beings open their mind. May all beings open their hearts. May all beings live with wisdom and compassion. So it's just coming to 8.30, and we have our half hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.